Our scripture lesson is taken, again, from Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, page 1819. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility." He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. The word of the Lord. May we pray. Lord, help me to be clear and concise and compelling and practical. Touch the hearts of all who hear this, whether in this building or outside of here, in Jesus' name, please fill me that your word may dwell in me richly in all wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've entitled this, and this is part two of a sermon about that wall that is between people and how that wall is brought down. And the focus today is found in verse 13. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Now, it's popular with some people to be dismissive of the blood of Christ and to say, well, it simply means he died. But I submit to you, there's something potent about blood, whether it's the blood of an animal or the blood of a human being. Blood has great significance in the Bible, and not only to God, but also to the unseen world. I want you to look, if you would, for a moment at the paper that I had distributed, which says, we are redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and not simply by his death. What I've done is capitalize every one of those statements that have to do with the blood of Christ. And as you read it, you begin to notice that the blood is very, very important. Jesus' death 
had he been strangled, had he been hung, would not have atoned for your sins and mine. That's a very important truth. Had Jesus been strangled, had he been hung by the neck until he was dead, his death would be of no value in washing away your sins. And that goes back to some things that are very striking. One of the things that struck me in my Bible reading this week was in Leviticus, how people were forbidden to eat blood. And that's very striking. Over and over again in the Old Testament, people are forbidden to eat blood. Why? And then something else that's quite striking If you look in the book of Acts, at Acts chapter 15, where there was a dispute that had to do with the Gentiles being included with the Jewish people. And there was a party that had gone down uh, to Antioch, where believers were first called Christians, and it stirred things up. And they had said, unless you're circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so there was a great dispute. People began to wonder, am I saved? Am I really a Christian? Can I be sure I'm going to heaven? And so they decided to have a council. This is the very first council of the church in all of church history, and it took place in Jerusalem. And if you turn there uh, on page 1719, we want to read these things here. In verse 22, the council's letter to the Gentile believers. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Bersabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. And they go in there and they recite the problem. And he says, they say, this is a whole church council now, the very first uh, church council. They're saying, here's the problem. That men came and they told you that you had to observe the law of Moses. You had to be circumcised uh, to be saved. And they say... uh, We are, verse 27, Therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Now, I want us to ponder that for a moment. What is involved in those four things? Things strangled, eating blood, uh, actual idol worship, and sexual immorality. If you think about it, in light of what we learn in Scripture, all of those things have to do with pagan worship. You see, in pagan times... The demons were excited by bloodshed. You remember Elijah and the prophets of Baal? And what did the prophets of Baal do? They're desperate because they're about to lose. And they're crying out, O Baal, hear us! O Baal, hear us! And it says that they did something, 
And what they did was, as was their custom, they slaughtered themselves. That is to say, they, they took lances and they began to uh, pierce. That's uh, 1 Kings 18.28. So they cried with a loud voice and gashed themselves <clears throat> according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. That's interesting. So pagan worship involved shedding blood and often shedding one's own blood to excite evil spirits. There's something else here, and that is if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 18. This is a strange verse. I had a, I had a friend years ago who was... Uh, who, who began to discussion with me, and he said, you know, it's not right to sell dogs. I said, really? Deuteronomy 23 and verse 18. Deuteronomy 23, 18. He said, the Bible says that it's the same as paying for a prostitute. Looking there on uh, page, uh, page 309, he says, no Israelite, man or woman, is to become a shrine prostitute. You must not bring the earnings of a female prostitute or of a male prostitute into the house of the Lord uh, your God to pay any vow because the Lord your God detests them both. But that's, that's what it's actually saying. The King James Version says something different. To bring the price of a harlot or a dog. What is the dog that's in view here? The dog that's in view here is not a four-legged creature. It is a male prostitute who served in the temple of pagan gods, just like female prostitutes did. And they were, to use the Hebrew word, you shall not bring the hire of a harlot, that is a kadashah, or the wages of a dog, a kadosh, and that's a male and a female. What did, what's involved in this? The pagan world believed that they were actually having sexual relations with the gods involved when they had sexual relations with a cult prostitute, whether male or female. So they had both. And they are, it's not a literal dog, as in the King James Version my friend thought was talking about uh, selling pit bulls to your neighbors. Um, this, is, this is a male cult prostitute, and the pagans believed that when they had intercourse with that person, they were having intercourse with the god that, uh, whose, whose shrine they were at. And um, the same with the woman. And so what I want us to see is that in paganism, the shedding of blood, particularly mutilating yourself, hacking on your body, cutting your body, and letting the blood flow is very much related to pagan worship. So shedding your blood and involving in sexual immorality, those are things that characterized the Pagan worship. And so what the council at Jerusalem is saying to the Gentile Christians is this. 
You're not obligated to observe the ceremonies of the Mosaic Law. But there are four things you need not do, and they all relate to pagan worship. Stay away from those places because what? Those places represent a reality. Let's look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10 for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and Paul warns the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he's warning the church in Corinth not to be involved in pagan worship. Look at what he says there on page, um, page 1783. Picking it up on the, next page, the previous page, verse 14. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? He's saying that when we drink the fruit of the vine, the wine or the grape juice, that we are actually participating in the blood of Christ. How, how do we do that? I don't know. I just know that we do. Theologians scratched their heads and came up with all kinds of theories of how we do that. But the fact of the matter is, the Bible doesn't give us enough information to know how we do it. It gives us enough information to know that we do it. So we participate in the blood of Christ. And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? And then he says, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. We all partake of the one loaf. Now notice verse 18. He says, Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? Now notice verse 20. No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons. Are the pagan gods real? And the answer that the Bible would give us is yes and no. Yes, they're real, but no, they're not gods. They're phony gods. They're in a masquerade party. What they actually are are demon spirits. Rebellious angels who left their first estate and followed the evil one. They're demons. And he says, the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons and not to God. You see, they're not gods. They want you to believe they're gods. Why? Because they're just like humans. Every human being wants to be worshipped. Isn't that the original sin? Satan says to Adam and Eve, you'll be as gods. And that's the quest. My wife and I have been watching a documentary uh, for several nights on certain empires, and every world leader in ancient times, wanted people to worship him. It's all about lust to be worshipped, and that's the heart of Satan's sin. Satan is looking over at the Lord, this is before Satan became Satan, when he was an anointed cherub, and he's saying, how come he's getting all the honor and glory? I want some honor and glory. And so that original sin of Satan is reduplicated throughout history in every single human being. And so even the demons, they want to confuse people. 
I'm a god. You should worship me. All the gods of the pagans, whether it's uh, Dionysius, and Dionysius' festivals always involve bloodletting and getting into a drunken frenzy and ripping an animal apart and eating it as the blood was sprinkled on the worshipers of Dionysius. What is Dionysius? He's simply a demon spirit. What is Diana? Artemis, same person. What is Venus? All of these are pagan gods who are no gods at all, but are motivated by demon spirits who lust for human worship. They want to be worshipped. Have you ever thought of the hierarchy of hell? The hierarchy of hell is different from the hierarchy of heaven. In heaven, people willingly choose to serve the Lord and therefore to serve each other. But the hierarchy of hell is a place of jealousy and strife, but they're held in check by fear because these demon spirits, whether it's Satan himself or lesser spirits, what are sometimes called world rulers, the authorities of this age, they're all held in check by their fear of the one above them going on down to the lesser demons. And so what Paul is saying here in verse 18, consider the people of Israel, do not those who eat of the sacrifices participate in the altar, do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices pagans are of sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot have part both of the Lord's table and the table of demons. So what I want us to understand is this. Demon spirits crave blood. Demon spirits crave worship. Demon spirits, as Satan himself, are under an enormous sense of fear and jealousy, strife, but working to a united purpose because of the cruel lash. Just think of all of the dictators in history and how they drove their subjects, either with the belief that they were a god and therefore in the afterlife it would not go well unless they served this human manifestation of the god, or by just abject fear because of the torture and cruelty inflicted. Is there any world ruler in history who did not govern by fear and cruelty? And I'll say only one, the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is a kingdom of love, a kingdom of acceptance. But it's the blood that sets people free. And so... It's because the life of the flesh is in the blood. So we look back there at Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 12, verse 13, page 18, 19. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Again, looking at the handout front and back, which I hope you'll look at this afternoon, you see that it's not simply the death of Jesus. It's not simply his laying down his life, even though the life of the flesh is in the blood. 
It is his shedding his blood, and it's by the blood of Jesus that we have unity. So what do we do? We appeal to God through the blood of Jesus for unity with those we need to be united to. And you notice again as you go through, as we looked last week, about this bringing together of Jewish believers and Gentile believers into one body. And how is that? It's because of the blood of Christ. So don't let anyone ever speak to you and say, well, that's just a metaphor. That's just a figure of speech. I'm reminded, and I've shared the story before, my backdoor neighbor asked me to sing for her on a Sunday, and she happened to be a Christian scientist. Now, Christian science is a cult, and it's a cult because it denies some very basic truths. One of the basic truths of Christian science that they deny is the importance of the blood of Jesus. And so as I was preparing to sing for her, she said, oh, no, 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 don't sing that. I was going to sing that song, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Anyhow, and she said, oh, no. I said, why? And she said, because it talks about blood. And I'm probably overly dramatizing how she said it talks about blood. You see, so she wanted me to sing Malat's The Lord's Prayer, and I did. I was a new Christian. It talks about the blood. The point I'm making is it's the blood that washes away our sins. Without the blood of Jesus, there is no forgiveness of sins. If you look through uh, that list, you'll see, for example, the book of Hebrews is full of it. But if you look at the last book of the Bible that's mentioned there, and we'll just turn there for a moment, uh, we can see, uh, starting in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, we're just going to go through a few verses there. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, the very beginning, page 1913, he says, Grace, I'm picking it up in verse 4, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, that is the sevenfold Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, who's the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, not just by dying, but by his blood, by his blood. And then turning over to Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, the great song of the church. Remember, psalms are wonderful to sing, but they're not enough. The early church sang the psalms of David, but they also sang other songs in Scripture. And they wrote their own songs. And here is a great song, page 1919. Revelation chapter 5 and beginning at verse 9. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. See how the unity of the church is blood-bought? This vast multitude that is being sung about in Revelation 5 from all the nations of the world. 
What are they? They're bought with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ. We should plead the blood of Christ over situations. And then he says, if we turn over to Revelation chapter 7 verse 14. Revelation chapter 7 verse 14. And he says there, uh, it says, He's asking, the angel asked John, who are these folks? And I answered verse 14, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So again, the blood, the blood of Christ, that's what's important. And the most important verse of all in this is Revelation 12.11. And Revelation 12.11 gives us the reason why you don't hear about the blood of Christ. I'll say this. One test of whether a church is a Bible-preaching church, a gospel-preaching church, is do you ever hear about the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? And listen to what, he, what we're told here in Revelation uh, 12. And uh, I'm going to pick it up at, at verse 10. Page 1926. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And the point I want to make here, which is a very vital point, is that Satan hates the doctrine of blood atonement. He wants the world to be ignorant about it. He doesn't mind a strangled Jesus. He doesn't mind a Jesus hung by his neck until the life came out of him. He despises the blood because it's the blood that breaks the power of Satan. It's the blood that silences the accusations of Satan. It's the blood that sets prisoners free. It's the blood that creates unity out of the divisions of this world because our world is ripped apart with division. And it's only the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that can bring healing, reconciliation, and unity. Our country is being ripped apart constantly New things happen here and there. People are set on fire with the madness of hell to want to destroy the church of Christ, as we know about the church in uh, Texarkana, Arkansas this past week. And these things are happening all over the United States. Shootings. Why did a, why did a woman taking treatments go in and murder six people in Nashville, Tennessee, shooting to death the pastor's daughter because that woman was set on fire from hell to hate Christians, to hate believers. What we need to do is plead the blood. When we pray to God, we need to plead the blood. When we've got a conflict with a family member that refuses to be united with us, that is sitting in judgment of us, that is, that is obstinate, we need to plead the blood of Jesus over them. Lord, when we pray, Lord Jesus, we plead your blood over so-and-so. 
Lord, set him free. Lord, set her free. Because listen, what Ephesians tells us plain and simply is this, that we once, like they, were children of wrath. We were, in the words of Ephesians chapter 2, people who were by nature children of wrath. And we were, in the words of Ephesians chapter 2, we were those who were being indwelt, dominated, and led by the Spirit that is work in the world. Look at what he says there on page 1818, Ephesians 2.1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now in work, at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature subjects of wrath, but now God's great love. The point I want to make is this. Arguing with people is folly. Arguing with people is folly. There's nothing nuttier than getting on the internet and arguing with people because people, if they are unbelievers, are being dominated by the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now in work in those who are disobedient. Not only are all human beings totally depraved, not meaning meaning that they're as bad as they possibly could be, but no part of human nature has escaped the impact of human sin, but they are also indwelt by spirits. That's what he's saying. He's saying, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And so what do they do? They stir up people to get you mad. You get in an argument, sooner or later you're going to lose your temper. Because you get frustrated, because they just can't see. You can talk all day long to someone who's blind and tell them uh, to describe the colors of, of the church, what it looks like. They can't see. And you have to understand human beings are by nature blind and dumb and deaf to spiritual things. But not just that. They are being worked on by the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are in disobedient, who are disobedient. So what happens when somebody is your neighbor or your friend or a member of your household? Are you going to convince them of truth? Absolutely not. What do you need to do? You need to pray and you need to plead the blood of Jesus over them. Plead the blood of Jesus. Lord Jesus Christ, you shed your precious blood that human beings would be set free. And I plead with you, Lord Jesus, for my loved one, that that person will come to know you, come to love you, because my arguments are worthless, Lord, unless you were in it at the time to speak that word to their hearts through me. It goes back again to prayer, the importance of prayer, and the importance that barriers be broken down that the church here on Robison Road should be black and white and Hispanic. People say, well, cultures, you know, to hell with cultures. Cultures divide human beings. 
I want to belong to a blood-bought fellowship of people whose culture ultimately is derived from Scripture itself and who delight to get together and meet and pray and sing and worship the Lord. That's the culture I want to be part of. The cultures of this world have all been mixed with all kinds of things, even so-called Christian cultures, such as that we had in some ways in the early days of America. But it was a mixture. It was, it was a hybrid. It had elements of Christianity and elements of paganism. The important thing is the church, the gathering together of believers, whether in a home or whether in a building like this. And the important way to have that happen is to plead the blood, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're listening to this today, I want to appeal to you to open your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and to His gospel. Because no matter what you've done, whether you've had an abortion this past week, or whether you're in the mob, because it's not out of the question that people who are in the mob are listening to this on the internet. And you were part of murdering someone, beating them to death as an example. Or whether you've stolen a vast amount of money that you can never repay. If you've molested children. If you've raped somebody. No matter what you've done. No matter what you've done. There's nothing so bad that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ can't wash it away utterly, totally, and completely, I appeal to you the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the blood will never lose its power. Lord Jesus, take this message in my own frailty and weakness and apply it to our hearts. And we appeal to you, Lord, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the authority and power of his precious shed blood. Amen. Our closing hymn is number uh, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms, and that's number 575.